Well, we should probably get started, because um, I've been reminded it's already 11. Okay. Um, so today is, I've been told, the 19th. So we will read Psalm 19, and I've <clears throat> got two options for you, for you, uh, for the prayer this morning. Uh, this is coming from Fountain of Heaven. Prayers of the Early Church, uh, it's newly published in the last probably six months or so, uh, but um, 2002, what month are we in now? February. 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 It could be December of 22, so it's, okay. yeah. just pretend. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just different different headings. So, a short prayer from Augustine, or a medium-length prayer from John Chrysostom? Short, because we're not on time. <laughs> Everybody's sticking with Noah, a short prayer? Oh, yeah. Okay. Noah's right. <laughs> wow. At least today. today. Yeah. At least today. <laughs> All right. Well then, Psalm 19, to start us off. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, we ask that you would come now to our aid, you who are the only eternal and true God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, without any variableness or turning, without any needs or lack of power, and without death. You who always dwell in the highest brightness, you are always totally steadfast, self-sufficient, and one. With you there is no lack of good. You are always full of every good for eternity. You are Father and Son and Spirit. And we pray that you would be with us now 
and that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Any thoughts on the psalm or the prayer before we jump into temptations of the flesh? Well, the last verse of the psalm is the one that <clears throat> I know some people use sort of as it get the day started. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Into whatever situation you you just set that set your mind on that. It's, yeah, yeah. And it sets a good pace. Right. Good place to fix our eyes. Perfections. Yeah. So what I hope to accomplish this morning within the topic of. Uh, Temptations of the flesh, specifically overcoming temptation, uh, is to help us understand that every Christian faces temptation. But I want us to understand the source, or even sources, of that temptation. Uh, Because I think once we do, we will be better able to overcome it. Uh, And we will hopefully also this morning be equipped to face the struggles of life. So this session focuses on the flesh, which is one of the three sources of temptation, um, which comes from uh, 1 John, so you may know the other two. Anyone? The flesh. The world and the devil. Yes. Flesh, the world, and the devil. Uh, The next session will focus on uh, the devil and the world, as sources of temptation. But this morning... Uh, we're looking at our own sinful flesh. So the, the place that we need to start as we consider temptation is um, the deception of temptation. So there's a little anecdote in the, in the Disney classic, A Bug's Life. Who has seen A Bug's Life? Mm-hmm. Classic. <laughs> Once or twice. Okay, you may be, may be well familiar with this then. Uh, there's a scene <clears throat> when the bug named Harry, anybody, I don't remember what kind of bug Harry is, but neither here nor there, uh, is mesmerized by an electrical light zapper. Uh, he starts flying toward the light, even though his friend is strongly warning him, no, Harry, no, don't look at the light. Harry responds, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. So the light in Harry's eyes is so alluring that he voluntarily flies right into the light, and what happens? (laughs) Yes, he is zapped. Uh, And uh, dies. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, He's destroyed by what he thought would bring him great pleasure and happiness. And that's just, I think, a good picture of the deception of temptation, because it always looks good, right? Uh, However, uh, it cannot deliver on the the pleasure that it uh, promises. So Harry was deceived, and we need to realize that we too are deceived by temptation. So the power, or the potential power, we should say, of temptation is in its deceit. Temptation promises to give us more, whether it's more pleasure 
more happiness, more satisfaction, more fulfillment. But it's always trying to do that outside of following God. And so the promise of whatever it is that is alluring us um, are deceiving. Because the greatest benefits, advantages, and blessings come from making choices that agree with what God says is best. So temptations appear promising, but they conceal the eventual negative and destructive consequences of sin. And, and this really, <clears throat> I, I guess even the process of temptation reveals something about how we think about the nature of God. Because if we think that we can uh, somehow know better than God, implicitly what we're saying about God is that His knowledge is not infinite. And, and so we're maybe even charging God with some, some lack in His character uh, by finding beauty outside of His design. And God has given us uh, the rules we're, I mean, we're studying Genesis. In the garden, there was one negative command. You shall not eat from the tree. Uh, but God had given them everything that they needed. So there's the positive that exists within the garden. And, and instead of you know, feasting on all of what God had provided, they chose, uh, and we would have as well, to go straight for... Um, what they were not supposed to. Uh, and it ultimately did not deliver on its promise and revealed uh, what they thought, what Adam and Eve thought of God. So the three enemies of, of our soul that use uh, temptation to draw Christians away from God, we've already identified them. Uh, flesh, the devil, and the world. We need to understand the flesh. Because as we've already said, the power of temptation is in its deceit. Temptations conceal the destructive consequences of sin. I don't need examples of this unless you absolutely feel it, you know, a burden that you need to share this. But have, has, have you found this to be true in your own life? And yet we still do it, right? Oh, yeah. <coughs> Uh, We're easily fooled. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the enemy within, the flesh. The flesh is one of the enemies that tempts us to disobedience. But to get a good grasp of what the Bible teaches about the flesh, we'll look at some scriptures and describe our nature. The flesh is that element within humans that generates desires that are hostile to God and oppose His will for our lives. The flesh is, maybe even use these terms, is the ego that feels an emptiness inside and tries to satisfy that emptiness with anything but God. Some versions of the Bible translate the word for flesh as sinful nature. Um, and... I mean, I don't know, we could have that discussion if we need to, but it can also be confusing uh, because I think last, last week we talked about um, 
being a new creation in Christ. And so when we are when we are regenerated, which is one of the things we talked about last week, when we are brought to spiritual life, um, it may not be the most helpful way to think of our our nature because our sinful nature has been brought to life. We are made new. Uh, but there is still the flesh that we are battling against. Um, so we would just simply define flesh this way. The flesh is the selfish, God-resisting impulse, bent, or inclination within us that opposes God and His will. Uh, I... This is probably not new to most of you. Um, I like rap music. Huh? Judge me later. Um, Shailene is one of my favorite rappers here. Shailene? Yeah. I think so. Of course. Yes. I mean, <laughs> we listen to it a lot. Thank you, Evan. Yes. Um, he says creatively about sin, all sin has I in the middle of it. Yep. You get that? Like, S-I-N? Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> It's just creative. I like that. And and so there's there's uh, bars, yes, yes. This idea that flesh is the selfish, God-resisting impulse. I think that's a good place to start to say, um, in facing temptation, instead of fixing our eyes outward and upward on who God is and all that he has done for us in Christ, we focus inward. And... Um, Start to, to, to kind of think, uh, I don't know, different situations, um, this is good for me, or I deserve this, or uh, whatever it might be that we tell ourselves uh, that, that keeps the focus on ourselves. But, that's not, um, that's not the way of faithfulness. Uh, and so we need to ask the question, why is it that we are still functioning in this way? Uh, we say probably all the time, nobody's perfect, but the question is, well, why not? Why isn't there even one perfect person? What does Scripture universally say about who we are? Romans 3.10 There's no one righteous, no, not one. Scripture tells us... Um, that this selfish, God-resisting bent within us is derived from Adam. So when Adam sinned against God in some mysterious way, this has uh, been passed down to us from him. And it has affected the whole human race. Romans 5, 12, and 19 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. When Adam fell into temptation, um, he sinned. And now that we are all descendants of Adam, we are a part of that fallen race. So we are affected by Adam's disobedience. The Bible teaches that we are sinful by nature. In our union with Adam, we are counted as sinners. So this is what is referred to as original sin. 
I think there is even some confusion <coughs> around um, original sin, because you hear original sin, and you're like, okay, that was the first sin. Like, sin was, like, original or whatever. Uh, but when we are talking about the doctrine of original sin, uh, we're more so talking about how we have been infected with sin. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. And again, this is, that's outside of Christ. It's like a corruption. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's um, the bent towards sin, the inclination that is uh, within us all naturally. Uh, so if we are by nature children of wrath, then it, it can only be because we are all by nature sinners. Uh, for God does not direct his wrath towards those who are not guilty. God did not create the human race sinful but upright. Adam and Eve lived in the garden for however long they lived. Pastor Tim seemed to hint at today that he didn't think it was too long. Um, I think it would take a long time for all of the animals to parade in front of Adam. More than a day, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think you'd have to take a coffee break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, it probably wasn't like decades either. Um, Aaron, yeah. the whole concept of the deceitfulness of sin yeah. sometimes makes me think that that's sort of making an excuse for okay. the sin. Sure. Um, scripture says that Adam wasn't deceived. He was, yeah. Adam wasn't. Yeah. And yet he chose to sin. I, I personally think that most of the time when I sin, Deception has nothing to do with it. Okay. My eyes are wide open. Mm. I am choosing. Is it deliberate? It's a deliberate thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's my choice. <coughs> to say I was deceived is kind of like saying, well, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. Scapegoat? Yeah. Yeah. It just, just kind of struck me when we were. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I, I don't want to remove any culpability. I mean, uh, yeah, and I, I do hear that. Um, I guess, yeah, and I guess even in thinking of that, like, um, where it says Eve was deceived and Adam ate also, um, I, I guess, I guess, like, the point in that is, the fruit wasn't hanging rotten on the tree. Like, it, it looked good to mm -hmm. eat. And, yeah, okay. and so they ate. I think we knowingly sin many times. Sure. We're deceived into thinking, like, I'm thinking of an extra piece of candy. Mm -hmm. I should have mm -hmm. Or three. I should have sure. had one. Yeah. I'm deceived mm -hmm. into thinking that it's going to taste so good. It's mm -hmm. going to taste so mm -hmm. good. I'm knowingly sinning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that you kind of look at it that way without making an excuse for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, d yeah, I definitely don't want us to make excuses for ourselves by any means. Um, but I, yeah, like I think in in that uh, whatever whatever it is that we would pursue that would be sinful um, is attractive. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs>
thing that, like, is attractive, is it, like, do you think most sin is the corruption of something God intended? Like, there's a, there's some, or is it, like, this entirely manifested, mm. like, original, new, like, uh, before I, there's nothing, like, that this stems from that is God intended, like, I mean, adult, adultery, right. like that sort of thing, like, it, God created man and woman mm -hmm. to, you know, come together as one, mm -hmm. and that in and of itself is a very good thing, but it's yeah. something that is corrupted, just like an artistic expression, yeah. and striving to create something that utilizes the gifts God's given us, yeah. but then looking at your neighbors and like being like, man, they're so much better than I am, like, yeah, I yeah, wish yeah. I could do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to provide proof to you that my answer is not thought up on the moment. Um, if it will cooperate with me. I'm trying to uh, open what I prayed this morning. Uh in our opening prayer, I said... Wait, you mean that's not off the top of the dome? What? Oh, sorry to what? ruin the illusion. Um, I, so I said, we use what you give us to worship ourselves. Our minds are used to think highly of ourselves, our bodies are used to pursue passions and whatever feels good, our stomachs are used for a source of satisfaction, our lips are used to curse others made in your image, our hands are used to hurt and deface, our emotions are used to direct our lives. You have given us all these things to be used in service to you, and yet we serve ourselves. So I think, and and. I don't know if I'm willing to go as far to say every single sin would fall into those categories, um, but I think sin takes something God has given to us and has given us boundaries for, and we go outside of those boundaries. I think in, in 1 John, it mentions those, um, and I can only think of the Greek term right now, it's um, epithumia. There's, there's a desire that is raised, uh, I, I'm blanking all the passages, um, but it's, it's something that um, God has given to us for worship of Him, for our satisfaction, for our good, that we take and we distort. Uh, and so, I mean, to go back to the candy example that, that Linda shared, that... Um, we can, by having more food than we're supposed to, use our stomachs, something God has given to us for our sustenance, to be a source of satisfaction for us. And so that is taking something God gave us, a need that we have, and exploiting it uh, for worship of self. So again, it comes back to all sin has an eye in the middle of it. But, Good, thank you. Um, when we talk about sin, uh, it's, it's one of, if not the only doctrines 
uh, one of very few that we need no, like, we don't need to be convinced that it exists. Uh, there was a conference once, R.C. Sproul was asked a question, um, how, can you, how can you prove the doctrine of original sin to someone? And he said, steal their wallet. Like, just, just he, it was just a joke that he was making, but um, G.K. G. K. Chesterton said the only Christian doctrine for which there is empirical evidence is that of original sin. If we don't see it in ourselves, then surely we can look around us and, and see evidence of it all around us. Um, we should probably see a therapist. Yes, we should also see it in ourselves. But um, So what he's saying is, just look at human behavior through the centuries, the hurt, the pain, suffering that humans have inflicted on each other, and the way that we have dishonored and ignored God. And it's obvious that something is broken. And so there is objective, there is empirical evidence for sin. Uh, John Owen wrote uh, a work called Sin and Temptation, where he gives some more elaboration. <coughs> the, the language is a little old. He wrote in the 17th century, but he says, It adheres as a depraved principle unto our minds in darkness and vanity, unto our affections in sensuality, unto our wills in a loathing of and uh, aversation from that which is good, and by some more or all of these is continually putting itself upon us in inclinations, motives, or suggestions to evil. I did have to look up aversation, which means a turning from with dislike. So unto our wills, uh, wills in a loathing and turning from with dislike uh, from that which is good. And putting itself upon us in inclination, motives, or suggestions to evil. So the, again, the flesh is selfish. It's God-resisting. Uh, it's bent or inclination uh, within us is that we would oppose God and His will. But we can be thankful that that's not the end of the story. And so, there is new life that is given, new life within, from the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in Regeneration last week. The New Testament informs us uh, that before we became followers of Christ, the flesh dominated our lives. That we are slaves to sin. Our, our spiritual condition is described as being in the flesh. This is Romans 8-9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So it, it means that we are mastered and controlled by the flesh, uh, the old self, the old man, and are slaves to sin. But when we are born again, we are set free from the dominating power that the flesh had over us. And instead, the Spirit of God dwells in us, and we have new power and a new nature that can overcome the flesh. And so there's a very important verse, which is on the screen in front of you. Just listen to it again. You, however, are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But this means that when you believe in Christ, you are no longer in the flesh. Uh, the flesh no longer has the controlling power that it had. You now have the Spirit of God. And so the flesh uh, no longer has the power to be your master, to make your decisions. And when you put your faith in Christ, who was crucified in your place, a, in a very real sense, your flesh is crucified as well. This is Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. Actually, if you go to Romans 8 and start at the beginning of the chapter, yeah. it's flesh. Yeah. Right through. Yeah. yeah. According yeah. to his flesh, according to the flesh. Yeah. yeah. And if you read Romans 7 with Romans 8, you get the... Oh, yeah. And Paul had a lot to say about it. Yeah, yeah. So then the question arises... What's another question that arises? Alright, we're doing it. <clears throat> but another question arises. Uh, does that mean that you and I will never experience any inner desires or cravings that are against the will of God? Oh, that must be just you guys then. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so there's... There's a continual battle. It's just the domination that no longer exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the description of what happens when you become a believer, you're regenerated, you're born again, you're given a new nature. Ephesians 2.3, we were by nature children of wrath. That is the old man. The old man was in slavery to the flesh. The old you was dominated by the flesh. Uh, but if now you've been regenerated, you're given a new nature. New beings, new affections, new longings, new desires, and an incredible transformation has occurred. You are what is described as the new man, with distinct identity as a new creation in Christ. So the tyrannical power of flesh is broken. It has been dethroned. And so the Spirit of God becomes the dominant factor, the driving, I don't want to say force, because that misrepresents what the Holy Spirit uh, accomplishes in us. He's the dominant um, person uh, who, who guides us uh, and we are given a new identity, a new heart, and a new nature. That's one of the questions on the state of theology. Is the Holy Spirit a force or a personal being? Uh, and so didn't want to cause any confusion with that. So although the flesh is still present within you, there's a life-changing difference. The flesh was master over you, but now the flesh has lost its controlling power and is simply an opposing force that seeks to tempt you. Probably should note well, the word simply does not imply that it's easy. Yeah, that it's simple. That's right. Um, but the flesh has been dethroned. Uh, John Piper has a graphic analogy of... Um, of this, so I'll just read this at length. It says, when the Bible speaks of our flesh having been crucified, it is saying that the enemy has been conquered. The decisive battle against the flesh has been fought and won by Christ. The enemy has lost. The Spirit has captured the capital and broken the back of the resistance movement. <clears throat> the flesh is as good as dead. 
Its doom is sure, but there is an but there are outlying pockets of resistance. The guerrillas, in brackets he has terrorists, whichever you prefer, of the flesh will not lay down their arms and must be fought back daily. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. Conflict in your soul is not all bad. Even though we long for the day when our flesh will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts, yet there is something worse than the war within between flesh and spirit, namely, no war within, because the flesh controls the citadels and all the outposts. Praise God for the war within. Serenity in sin is death. The spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh, so take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. I'm also thinking of a rap song now. <laughs> Tadashi, anybody know Tadashi? He has a song called Make War, which actually that might be part of the sermon that he uses as the opening. But anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, so the flesh, again, was the controlling master over you before you came to faith. But now, you are indwelt by the Spirit. And the flesh is an opposing force that has lost its controlling power. You are now new. And we are daily battling the flesh. Uh, so, think with me for a second. What do you think it means that the flesh was master over you, but now the flesh has lost its controlling power and is simply an opposing force that seeks to tempt you? like lost its domination it's lost its absolute like unquestioned authority mm. in your life because you now have a conscience mm. that or the Holy Spirit but mm. now it's you cannot rest but you no longer have the ability to with a clear conscience sin mm. right it's not that you can't sin it's that you can't do it and feel good about it forever like you, you've basically given up your ability to view the things that you once that you that you once thought of as good or fine as, uh, as that way anymore. Mm -hmm. I would say it's partly where the Holy Spirit convicts you almost instantly. Mm. Yeah, though conviction, though rarely pleasant, mm -hmm. is a good thing. So we have this this ongoing struggle, <clears throat> and I don't think we're actually going to get to um, the uh, couple steps on how to kill sin. 
But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, come back next week for more. So, we'll see. Maybe we'll just we'll fly here. Galatians 5, 16, 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want. If we are walking by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Uh, so this means that there is great hope as we face the desires of the flesh to overcome them by walking in the Spirit. Uh, to walk in the Spirit or by the Spirit means that we are living our lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to control. And so when we act on the counsel and guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, uh, you are able to resist the desires of the flesh. Uh, it's not wrong to be tempted by the desires of the flesh, but it is. it does become sin when you give in to those desires. Uh, I, I, I love the picture that is presented in Psalm 1. I, I think it's one of the most important... Well, it's definitely one of the most important psalms. It's possibly one of the most important chapters as well. Because you, you've got the picture of this blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf will never wither. In all that he does he prospers. Not so the wicked. Uh, you'll be like chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, therefore sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Um, yeah. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Um, and it's just this, this constant contrast. And, and I think part of the contrast that exists is someone who is meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Though it was different in the Old Covenant, uh, it would be someone who is seeking to be controlled by the Word of God. Uh, we would say maybe in New Covenant terms, be controlled by the Spirit of God. Uh, and so, if we are delighting in the law of the Lord, if we are putting our focus and our energy and our attention on, on thinking God's thoughts after Him, temptation will lose uh, its allure. And, and it's just this, this contrast that exists uh, of all of the different sources that we could go to uh, Bless this man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So walk, stand, sit. First, you're kind of just going along with them. Then uh, you're standing, you're listening more, and then you're sitting. And you're like, all right, tell me. Tell me all about it. And I think that describes temptation. Uh, and so we need, rather, to focus, meditate on the law of the Lord, which is, I think application of how we are to walk by the Spirit. So we will struggle with the flesh, but if we walk in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Uh, and we'll get to the application. So first, how do we do this? How, how is it that we can walk in the Spirit? Because that's Maybe not something that is absolutely obvious. So walking in the Spirit, I think, comes down to uh, a few things here. 
First, we have to acknowledge we are helpless to overcome desires of the flesh apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus reminds us in the Gospel of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you really believe that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when the Spirit is inside of us, we are empowered uh, by, uh, by God to be able to, to walk in the Spirit to overcome the desires of the flesh. Second, you must understand why our new identity is so important. Identity precedes and affects behavior. So attitudes, emotions, values, so on. If you perceive yourself as no longer enslaved to the flesh, it will affect how you face struggles and temptations from the flesh. And and this... <coughs> I don't have time, sorry. Um, we cannot identify ourselves with our sin. We are identify ourselves as the new creatures we have been made by... Uh, regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we walk in that new identity. Thirdly, must be active, not passive, in taking hold of the means of grace. I will explain what the means of grace are here in a second. Um, Paul wrote, fight the good fight of faith. You realize that there is a responsibility on you to, to do something in the pursuit of holiness. What are those somethings? I think there are four somethings um, that are the primary means of grace that for centuries Christians have understood are essential for walking in the Spirit and conforming more and more to the image of Christ. First, read the Word. Uh, think and meditate on it. The Holy Spirit will use the Word to strengthen your faith. Second, pray. Prayer. Earnestly seek God and pray especially that God would grant new desires and the ability to overcome the desires of the flesh. Third, I'm preaching to the choir here probably. Go to church. <laughs> Gather for worship, for hearing the communication of the word, for fellowship and for communion. And then fourthly and finally, serve. And this is maybe even to term it, live out your faith. Um, believe God's promises and authentically serve Christ. And sometimes that means uh, taking a meal to someone. Sometimes that means preparing the communion elements. Sometimes that means playing on the worship team. Sometimes that means nursery. Sometimes that means this, that, and the other. Those were all, uh, I guess, rather public. There are many behind-the-scenes things as well. Um, and so this is part of seeking first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, seeking to make disciples um, by reaching people with the gospel. This could take place in, in your neighborhood. This could take place in your home or on the dinner table. This could take place in so many different arenas. But these four things uh, will be the means by which God makes you more like Jesus. So it's not some sort of mechanical formula. Um, your heart before God matters in this process, but if you, with an honest heart, act upon the means of grace that God offers, then you can walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. So we overcome the temptations of the flesh by mortifying sin and walking in the Spirit. Okay. All right. So then uh, some...
cultivating spiritual habits. Hey, look, you could read the Bible. Just um, Do you need me to go back? Okay. Yeah, you better. Tell him, tell him he's a slacker. He was doing laundry this morning. Is he at? Oh, he's at home. His dryer was on. His house. Yeah, maybe he's got a roommate, I guess. Yeah. Uh, some spiritual habits. Read Matthew 4, 1 to 11. John 15, 18 to 25. Some of these are directly related to what we talked about. Write down some ways that you can combat fleshly temptations and then memorize Galatians 6, 5, 16. As we walk by the Spirit, we're not walk by the flesh. And not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That, sorry, there's a different translation here. But anyway. Um, any questions? Okay. Yes, there will, there will be a test. It's called the State of Theology. Alright, well let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the means that you have given to us to conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to be faithful in those so that we would walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We ask that you would do this in us um, for our good and for our extreme joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's